But it is good to be together. Um, so yeah, yes, yeah, uh, six months, um, six months and one week, like I said, um, man, a, a lot has happened, a lot has changed. Um, and I think uh, one of the pressures that uh, uh, maybe we feel as elders and as leaders of a church is to kind of unpack all that six months like has happened in six months in like one sermon or one wisdom nugget and just be like, boom, see, there we go. We got clarity, right? Um, and, and how many of you like this, the, the last six months has been um, like the Lord has like, to use the lyrics from the song, like kind of peeled back some, some layers. Anybody else like has, has some confronted some things. How many of them have not been like the prettiest things? Like, like, and listen, that is God's grace to us. And even us as a church, even us as a community of faith, here's, here's what I want to tell you as we, as, as we get into the scriptures even, um, that, uh, that as we move forward as a church, as we move forward as a faith family, uh, we want and we are desperately seeking that the presence of God, that, that, that his living presence is, is the thing that we go after. Is, is, is what we are pursuing. And so there will be things that we do. There will be things that, 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 you know, we typically do, but there will be also some things that we don't do, right? There will also be some of these things that historically, like, because listen, if what was, you know, we could put that under like the normal category, if, if you will, like if, if what was normal was producing in us what I think it was producing in us, and, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, but I think many of us resonate is like fatigue, like pre-COVID, not just talking through this, but like uh, busyness, um, lack of affection, lack of zeal, those things. Like if that's what that produced, I, I, I don't want that, okay? Like I, I don't want that for us. I don't want that for you. All right, we got some clappers. Thank you, please. I'm just kidding. But I, I don't want to go back to that. Now, there are pillars and there are things that will always remain constant. There are things that will always remain true. But I want us to be a people that is marked by knowing and being in the presence of God alone. And that's where we'll find freedom. That's where we're going to find strength. That's where we're going to find hope for our weary souls. And so, listen, there are going to be things that we try and we go, you know what? That's kind of that that, that old wine and the old wine skin. We're going to put it back down. There are going to be other things that we try and we risk as a community that we pick up and we go, you know what? That is a new wine in a new wineskin. Let's keep going because it leads us to the presence of God. That's what we're about, right? But something else we're also about, and this is one of those pillars, those staples, the word of God. This is our anchor, okay? So go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 14. I am really excited to be back in the book of Acts this morning. Uh, we covered, uh, so, so we started the book of Acts a year ago, um, in September, and I think it's 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 not by coincidence that we would be at Acts chapter fourteen uh, this morning. In Acts chapter fourteen, it's interesting because it is literally the middle point of Acts. There's twenty eight chapters in Acts, and here we are back at our first kind of gathering again in the middle of Acts. And so I want to ask this question, and, and there's not an answer to it, by the way. All right, so. Um, What's going to be different about the Parks Church in the second half of Acts from the first part of Acts? And not just corporately, but also individually. Um, again, as these six months, we elders have just surveyed and prayed a lot more than we've talked, honestly. 
And our desire, even as we get into the book of Acts, is what we've prayed before is that the, the book of Acts is not something we're in, but it's something that's in us. And that we are not simply going through the scriptures, even though we're going to go through the scriptures, as people who are merely accumulating more head knowledge. We don't need any more knowledge, right? We don't need any more intellectual assent. What we need is the work of God, the spirit of God, transforming and bringing his word into our lives that change us and shape us. And even as I've surveyed the, the first half of Acts, the first 14 chapters, there were these things, these words that kept coming up to us as elders. And there were three words, um, and, and there are these, and they'll put them on the screen behind me. And the first one is this, and this is kind of catching you up if you haven't been with us in Acts. Um, the first word is, is curiosity. You see, Acts is the story of Jesus Christ advancing after his uh, uh, resurrection, right? His death, resurrection. Now the Spirit of God has come. That's the beginning of Acts. And there is this new community formed known as the church. And what's interesting about this group of people that is formed by the Holy Spirit is the curiosity that is raised by those that they encounter, Right? Um, that, that people, when they peer in, people, when they observe truly these disciples marked by, by the Holy Spirit, there's like this, what in the world's going on there, right? And some people are drawn to it, and there is conversion by the power of Jesus Christ. And some, it's, it's like this rejection, but there's always this curiosity. And, and, and Acts 1.8 gives us like the thesis for the whole book, right? Acts 1.8 says this, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so what we see in the rest of Acts is that, Acts 1.8, playing out in the life of these disciples and the early church. But this curiosity is interesting as well because it's not just outsiders looking in. It's also from the inside, it's also these disciples, it's also these apostles, it's also these, these, these church leaders, like having what I call like this curious attitude of like, what happens when a group of people really get serious about the call of Jesus on their life? Right? What happens when a group of people really follow the way of Christ as Jesus laid it out for us? What, what happens in that? And so our prayer, even around curiosity for us as a community, us as a church, is this, is that we would, we would peer into Acts 14 like we're going to do this morning, and, and it, would, it would create curiosity. It would go, what does it look like to be a people like what we're seeing with Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14? What does it look like for my life to not just peer that on a page, but mirror that as a faithful disciple, as a, a faithful witness? And something else we see very vividly in the book of Acts is risk. That there is a cost to following Jesus. Now, Jesus, he made that abundantly clear, right? Like, if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you what? Everything, your life. Take up your cross, follow me. That was Jesus' command. In the book of Acts, with the Spirit going forth, we see the costliness, we see the risk of this all over the place. It's going to be vivid in Acts 14, as we'll see this morning. But I want to ask you, what cost is there in your life to following Jesus? What does it cost you? What risk have you taken in the name of Christ lately? What risks have we taken as a community of faith? Like this is what I was talking about up front. Like there are things that we're going to do in pursuit of God's presence that are going to be risky. Right? In terms of like we might get people might raise their eyebrow. Right? And by the way, that's I love what one commentator says. He says that's what we fear most in America is the raised eyebrow, not the raised fist. Like there should be things in your life as a disciple 
that you're laying on the line that, that is a cost to you that people raise their eyebrows. And it may be something as much as like, hey, we're just not going to have that kind of schedule. You're not going to have your kid in 17 programs, right? In 45 select sports, right? And water polo. The raised eyebrow may be saying no to some things, right? As simple as that is. But what is it? I think the last six months have afforded us opportunity to go, what really matters? And if we're not careful, we will have evaluated those. But as things kind of begin to shift, as they are a little bit, we'll begin to pick them back up. Right? And the next thing you know, we'll be going down the same stream headed in the same direction. And that's the thing with like the praxis groups. That's the things as we get back together, we want to push back on those. We want there to be resistance as we practice the spiritual disciplines, right? Of Sabbath or fasting or silence. We want those to resist our flesh and our draw just to get back to the way things were and submitting them to the spirit of God and going, listen, transform us, change us. And so that's, that's, that's where we're headed here in Acts 14. And then the last word is, is power. Now, don't put the typical American definition of power on power here. Put the biblical definition of power. Put the 14 chapters we've seen of acts of power. What does power look like? It doesn't look like bolstering up. It doesn't look like standing up tall. It looks like stooping low. Jesus would say, listen, you, you want to lead? You serve. You want to be first? You want to be seen as in power? There's the back. Like that, 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 That's power. So what does it look like when the Holy Spirit comes upon a people individually and corporately in power? It looks like they, they lead the way in serving. It looks like that they lead the way in selflessness, that we count one another uh, uh, better than we count or higher than we count ourselves. That takes power that is not within Kyle, that's not within you, that's outside of me. That comes from the power of the Holy Spirit alone. Power to put my preferences aside for your good. Power to, 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 to lay down my life is not found within me. It's found in the Spirit of God. It's found in the presence of God. It's found in submission. Man, that's a different definition than the one we live in culturally, is it not? But that's what we see in Acts. So let's, let's read. That's my intro to Acts 14. But we'll go quick. I've got a clock there. I know, I know. Cowboys play at noon. Da, 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 da. Right? All right. Verse 1, chapter 14. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra or Lystra in Derby, cities of Lyoconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Okay, scene one. All right? Remember, curiosity, risk, power. All right? Scene one here. The guys, Paul and Barnabas, have just been kicked out of Antioch. They have been removed. Look, Remember we talked about it at the end of chapter 13. And so that's where they shake the, the, the dust off of their sandals, okay? And they go on their way because they've just been booted out. Now, that's not just like a, that's like an act of judgment, by the way, of just going, hey, 
Like, we, we were there, we proclaimed the gospel, but we're moving on, all right? And so they have now moved on. And what I love at the end of chapter 13, if you have your Bibles, you can see it. It says that they went on with joy and the Holy Spirit. Like, I just love that combination. Like, they went on to this next place, Iconium, with joy and the Holy Spirit. And so they come to Iconium, and here at Iconium, they, they do what is the typical rhythm. They go into the city, which is predominantly Jewish, and there are uh, some Gentiles there, but they go into the synagogue. All right, because they find where they have a common um, kind of common playing field, the Old Testament. All right. But they talk to the Jews from this common playing field going, listen, Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. The one that the Old Testament talks about is fulfilled in Christ. And guess what? In preaching the gospel and preaching the message of Christ, people believe Gentiles believe Jews believe. However, what happens? Opposition. When you or I, and we need to hear this, when you or I live out faithfully the gospel, when you and I are faithful witnesses, there will be opposition. And so here's, what, here's what's interesting about this, because we'll see it twice. The opposition here was kind of this subversive under the, 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 the ground current. Did you see it in verse 2? It says that the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. That's an important phrase. He poisoned, they poisoned their minds. So the idea with this phrase, poison their minds, is kind of like this this liquid seeping out that is meant to influence and affect. And so think of it, you know, kind of as as this gossip, as it's going, that message of the gospel, you're going to believe that? You know that that Paul guy? You know he was Saul, right? You know know he killed a man, right? You you know this is who he was. You know Barnabas? Yeah, here's about Barnabas. And so he was poisoning their minds with this rhetoric. The enemy was using this pervasive poisoning to influence these people away from the gospel. And so listen to me. This is exactly what Satan does. This is one of his key tactics in this world, in this life, as we face opposition, and both as we face attack from him, is that he wants to poison our minds. That he wants us to believe these lies. And by the way, Satan has one language that he speaks. It's lie. He's known as the father of lies. There is nothing true in him. If he is speaking, if he is talking, it is lies. He's known as the accuser of the brethren or sisters. Like he is the accuser. All he does is lies. All he does, every word is poison. It's meant to poison you. And this, the church, listen, the people of God are not exempt from this. And I think one of the things we have to be careful of in this season, particularly, hear me, is that we are susceptible in a fragile state, in a fragile place, to the poisoning of our minds. Now pause and just, no talking back, just thinking about this, okay? Hear me. There are things very clear and prevalent before us, before our eyes, being put into our ears, that the enemy wants to poison our minds. Right? Thinking about these lies, maybe it's a ridiculous conspiracy theory, maybe it's, 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 it's an outlet or a source where mistruths happen. But maybe it's a little more subtle than that. And he's poisoning our minds around comparisons. Poisoning our minds, even within the church, of like, well, you know why they weren't having gatherings. Maybe a little too much for the first week. Or you know, hey, you know why they were having gatherings. And the enemy speaks these lies and it's meant to poison us. I'm going to talk about what it leads to here in a second, but it's probably why Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. You might want to write that down. 
this would be a good practice for us all. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Now, typically you hear that when you're struggling in your thought life, okay? Like, like you're like, oh, I just got to take this. What, what does he say? Take just the bad thoughts captive, right? Just take those ones that are really messed up. No, he says, take every thought captive and submit it to Jesus. Does this honor you, Lord? Does this glorify you? Does this bring fame? Or is this poison? Is this the language in the vocabulary of the enemy trying to seep in? And here's what happened when the poisoning of the mind took place. Did you see it? Look at it. In verse 4, I believe. Yeah, verse 4. It says, but the people of the city were divided. So this poisoning of their minds led to a division in the city. That's what takes place. Is that poisoning of our minds leads to divisiveness. It leads to disunity. That's the enemy's goal within the church, outside the church is confusion and disunity. And what the spirit of God wants to do is draw a people humbly together in his presence, not with poisoned mind, but with clear submitted minds to King Jesus to say, listen, if anybody is going to be a picture of unity, it's going to be the church. It's going to be the people of God. I'm just glad this is recorded so people can finally understand what we go through. And so from there, what does it lead to? The poisoning of the minds to this division. It leads to them wanting to kill him. It says that they plotted to stone him. Now, Paul and Barnabas, right? They're bold, but they're not stupid, all right? So they head out of town, okay? So they head out of town and look at it in verse 8. It says, now at Lystra... There was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now, I would love. I would love to unpack this more more than I can, but I think this is a picture uh, between these two events that, that, that should be clarifying. So here in the city, he shows up to Lystra, Paul and Barnabas, and there's this man who has been lame since birth there, and he looks intently at him. You see that in your scriptures? It says that that Paul looks intently at him. That is a phrase that is meant to kind of stop us. How often do we look at people intently? And this is an intent of love and grace and affection, but this is one of curiosity, risk, and power as well, by the way. That Paul looks at him and he sees that he has put his faith in Jesus Christ through receiving the message of these apostles, right? And he looks at him and he goes, listen, stand up. Like, I I don't want you just to, 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 to understand the love of Christ that has changed and given you faith in your heart. But I want you to experience it tangibly. And so this man stands up. Like, this is incredible. And, and by the way, signs don't save In Iconium, the city we were at just before this, there were signs and there were miracles and people still rejected the gospel. So what do you think would happen in this city of Lystra after seeing a scene like this? A man who they know very well because he's never walked. He's probably positioned at the same place every day. What do you think would happen in a city where this lame man stands up, walks, and is celebrating Jesus, right? Revival, maybe? Let's look at what happens. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, there's their first mistake. They lifted up their voice saying, in Lycoanean, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. 
Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. And here they're going to share the gospel with them that you should turn aside from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is within them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. So picture these two scenes. In the first one, you have them in a predominantly Jewish area from the synagogue proclaiming the gospel. People are believing. And then there's this pervasive message that goes out of, of poisoning their minds that, that is creating persecution. Now that you go to this next city and what takes place, right? The Holy Spirit is moving in power. They're proclaiming the gospel. A man walks. And here, the, the people of the city, which this is a Gentile region, and it actually gave the language that they spoke that Paul and Barnabas didn't speak. So they didn't, in fact, up front know what was going on. These people see Paul and Barnabas and they go, man, bring the calf. These, these are gods. This is Zeus and Hermes. This is what we've waited. We've waited on their visitation again. Bring it all out and let's celebrate. Let's worship them. You see how crafty the enemy is? In that first city, in that scene with persecution happening. And then in the second one, these guys are being revered and worshipped. And Paul, of course, goes, wait, 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 wait. Tearing his garment is a sign of, like, sacrilegious behavior. Like, that is, no, we're men like you. But the people of that city, what did they continue to do? They continued to try to worship them and bring them gifts and submit their way upon Paul and Barnabas. You see, the backdrop to this story is one that was a tradition in Lystra. You see, about 50 years prior to when this was written, is this old folk folklore story that, that Zeus and Hermes actually showed up in Lystra. And they showed up in normal clothes. And they visited people, and people rejected them, rejected them. It's total garbage and false, but this is the story that they believed. That they rejected them, rejected them, except for one old couple who, who received them and then found out this is Zeus and Hermes. Like, this is, these are these Greek gods, and they were celebrated and venerated, this whole couple. And so in the city, there was this idea, we're not going to miss them again. We're not going to miss these gods again. And then Paul and Barnabas show up and go, that's them! Misplaced worship. Seeing the power that, that they wanted and so deeply desired was now not power from man, but power from God. And Paul and Barnabas are trying to correct this, but what? They didn't have ears to hear. They still tried to worship them. And listen, before we go, man, how foolish are they? How silly are they? This is what we do all the time. We misplace worship all over the place. We put our hope and our stock in other things. We conform God. And this is exactly what they're trying to do. Not into his image, but into our image. Right? We make him into our likeness, into our preference, into our desire, into our tradition. You see, but when they're confronted by Paul and Barnabas about this, the last two verses, and we're gonna, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about them, they end up wanting to stone him and actually end up stoning Paul. What happens 
when the Holy Spirit confronts you and me about the idols of our own heart? What happens when the Holy Spirit confronts our church about a God who we've created, not in his image, but in our image? You see, the worst thing, hear me, church, the worst thing for discipleship is simply adding Jesus to your life. Jesus is not and cannot be an additive, right? That's what was taking place here in Lystra. The way of Jesus, the gospel in its fullest form is disruptive and destructive in the most beautiful ways. Lloyd Ogilvie, he, uh, he was actually, he was a Presbyterian minister who ended up being a, a, the Senate chaplain. Um, he says this, and imagine saying this to a room of Congress or senators, but I love it anyway. And when Jesus was born, there was no room at the end. And he's saying this next line in tongue in cheek. But today, we not only have room at our end, but a penthouse suite away from reality. Jesus is a VIP to be honored, but not believed or followed. In America, he is a custom, but not the true Christ. A captured hero of casual civil religion, but not Lord of our lives. That's what the gospel points to. The gospel is the message that Jesus is king over all, not just a portion. And so dare we try to fit him in to our tradition, to our plans, and to our uh, 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 agendas. He comes in and graciously and beautifully, like I said, disrupts all that. We, and by we, I mean you and I, we have a tendency to cut Christ down to our size and squeeze him into the straitjacket of one of our little gods. Security, comfort, political party, that's both of them, by the way, lest you think I'm thinking of one. Personal autonomy. That way he is safe and always at a distance. And here's what my fear is. The distance we're okay with Jesus being from our lives is this right here. A Sunday morning. And listen, that's the tension we feel. Even as leaders, even as people who desire so deeply to get back into this gathering, we don't desire to get back to this as we knew it in general that pacifies us. That pacifies us in a way when Jesus is calling us so much deeper that the distance he wants to draw is our whole lives, not stay at that arm's length. Is Jesus close enough in your life? Are you close enough to his presence that it transforms, that it shows you and exchanges your way of life and the way you think good is defined and it leads you to the way he has defined it where true rest and true freedom is actually found. Here's how the rest of the story plays out. Verse 19. But when Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, now they're all getting down here in Lystra for a party. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Welcome back to church, everyone. Um, But when the disciples gathered about him, listen to this. He rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. (gasps) What? They stoned him, right? And this wasn't like we just cast a couple of small rocks. Like they stoned him to the point that they thought he was dead. Like the the official stoners thought he's good. And they drug him out. And then the disciples get around him and are praying and probably like, what? You know, that's that's our leader. 
and they bend down. And can just imagine they see his shirt. They see his nostrils begin to flare. And he stands up. And this is what's crazy to me. He goes back into the city. Like, listen, check this out. Like, I, I, haven't, went, I haven't wanted to go outside the past couple of days because my allergies are flaring up. Like, seriously. And I don't want people giving me the eye, you know, like, yes, I'm sneezing. I have allergies, okay? Um, I, our, our microwave is broken. It's been broken for two weeks. This is how fragile and weak I am, right? I'm so upset that I have to heat up food on the top of the stove. Like, that's in, and, and those are just the ones I'm okay sharing with, okay? Like, let's be honest. Like, are we not fragile? And I look at Paul, and I see him stand up after being stoned, after proclaiming the gospel. He goes back into the city, and then he says, let's go to Derby. That is like a 60-mile legit hike. Like, you can look at it, right? Like, it is a legit hike up mountains and down mountains. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? And that's where I want to end today. Because, listen, here, here's going to be the struggle. Because some of you are like, yeah, what do I do? I, I, I'm a stay-at-home parent. I'm a student. I'm an engineer. I am, I, I'm a teacher. I'm a principal. Here's what I want to say. And we got a lot of good feedback on, on the questions on our videos. And so I want to give you a question. And I want you to dialogue on this if you're married with your spouse, maybe over lunch or maybe with your family. If you're not, someone who you have coffee with, someone. What is the Holy Spirit, from Acts 14, what is the Holy Spirit asking you or calling you to do? Right? And it, it may be just to change an affection or to change a belief, a preconceived idea. It might be a literal action. An act, I, I don't know. But that's the beauty of the Spirit that he speaks specifically to each one of us, that he is going, I trust that he is going to speak to your heart as he has spoken to mine. And so let's pray. Father, um, the first thing that comes to my mind and heart this morning is, is again back to confession and repentance that we've talked a lot about being weak and fragile, but I realize a lot of my weakness and my fragility is because, because I'm not practicing, I'm not living in risky obedience for the name and the cause of Christ. That sometimes the, the deep roots of my faith aren't really that deep. And so the winds and waves as they come and they will come from this life, can knock us around and toss us to and fro. And so, Lord, here's what I'm asking for us as a community, individually and corporately, is that you begin to sink our roots deep as a family. God, even as you have brought us back together, this sweet gift of assembly, may this be just a moment that, that drives our roots an inch deeper. And tomorrow when we wake up, it's another day of, of, of just deepening those roots in our lives because we're actually following you. So, Lord, I pray that your spirit might speak to us around Acts 14. That, yes, I'm encouraged by Paul's resilience. I'm confronted with my weakness. But, God, apart from you, I can't do anything. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you would show me how, that you would give me what it looks like to be obedient tomorrow and then the next day and the next and the next. And God, until we're able to gather again, Lord willing, next Sunday, may we not drag in here, but may we come in here sprinting and maybe see some of us limping because we have lived faithful, obedient lives Monday through Saturday. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for my family, this faith family. So let us live as faithful witnesses this week with the days you've entrusted to us. It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen and amen. Amen.